the waves crashed mildly against the vast seashore. The waters swoosh, kissing the feet of an electrified skion. She galloped happily against a now airborne dandelion and gyrated to the soft music of the Hawaiians. While lullabies bring sobbing children to quietude, sand castles and calypsos are livid dreams soaring on the right altitude. For her, all that glitters is truly gold. Glistening beaches and the limitless spring of Ribena is luxury for a six-year-old. But every vacation draws to its end. The tires of the airplane spins till it ascends. Longing for a tarmac that it may call its permanent zone. Only to rebirth passengers who are welcomed by familiar nostalgia called home. Welcome to Now You're Here. This episode is about a young child whose biggest struggle was as simple as living each day as it came, and how his life took a dramatic turn. His name you do not need to know, because his life is a reflection of many special children who grew up in those days. Children who were not considered to be bright, and perhaps below average intelligence. Children like me. You should know that this story has a bit of a twist, as I will be taking you through the eyes of this young child as he lives some of his experiences while he is in primary school. We have all been there, or at least most of us have. Does this sound familiar? <clears throat> Write a prose on how you spent your full term break on a full scrap sheet to be submitted first day of resumption. That was Mr. Sampson, our class teacher, ending the academic term with a dreadful take-home assignment. Why? Because I often got discouraging comments inscribed on my notes by his indelible ink, often attached to the report card reading, poor grammar, or very unserious, and needs more discipline. Extra lessons are recommended. The remark was often followed by the design of an inglorious core only written inside a circle, like the shape of a boiled egg, reading 4 over 10. And underneath it, you can do better. Of all the names one could ascribe to an object, who in his wisdom conceived the word false cap? All the teachers loved that sheet. It was their canvas, which, after the touch of their red pen, became art. If you look closely at the circles they drew, you will find that circles with the grade 0 to 4 often looked mean and unrefined. Most of the children teased each other with the design, alleging that the shape bore a certain semblance to the head shape of the child whose assignment was graded. It didn't matter whether you were a boy or a girl. We all had an idea of what the shape of our heads looked like. We were graded indiscriminately, although I would argue otherwise. We all knew who the teacher's favorite student was, and the nature of their relationship we could not quite explain. Circles 5 to 7 looked more forgiving. Instead of big X's, like in scores 1 to 4, the student's script was painted with several small circles, highlighting the different grammatical errors and mistakes in spelling or calculations when the child penned down his thoughts. 
And finally, scores 8 to 10 was simply glorious. It was the grade we all dreamed of imprinted on our full scrap sheets. It was something to brag about, but only a few ever got that mark. If you're wondering what I got in assignments like these, let me spare you the trouble and come clean now. I was the Arupo of the class. And for those of you that are not familiar with the badge, it means that I was the one student who always took last position each term. No one ever beat me at it, and neither did I know anyone who tried to aspire to my position. It was my trophy, and mine alone. It earned me the nickname Olodo. It was even a song for people like me. Something having to do with my favorite protein, the eyes of the fish. If you stick around to the end of this story, I might even sing the full song for you. Anyway, I digress. Laugh all you want, but even I am capable of pity, and I pitied my friends whose parents fell for Uncle Samson's tricky remarks and signed up their children for some extra lessons. In that time, I had never been so glad that we were poor and could not afford much. But I'll tell you one thing my father could afford. It was the cane. My brother and I called it the cane of repentance. It was the ultimate factory reset tool that somehow restored me back to my senses when I derailed from behavior compatible with common sense. When applied to the proper degree, the effects left me feeling empowered to abandon my position as a rope of the class the next term. But every time I doubled down, I just could not get the words out of the text right. The text seemed to fly out of the pages, and I found myself chasing after them. I tried explaining this to my friends, but they all thought I was a clown and had concocted a dream from a cartoon series I watched every Saturday morning. It would take me at least a decade to find out that I had a rare learning disability called dyslexia, and no one knew what it was or how to help. Full scap. That word. There was something about it that made me feel more serious than I truly was. Reality check. I was a fool. To make matters worse, I was a child with four eyes. I wore a pair of recommended glasses all the time. Enemy, another nickname, Ojugo. Which literally means eyes with glasses. It was a veil that concealed who I truly was and perpetrated a popular superstition come stigma that people who wore glasses were somehow more intelligent than most people. Well, not me. That Monday morning, with each student holding in their fingertips their full scrap sheets, we marched to Uncle Samson's desk at the front of the classroom in queue-like fashion to deliver our homework, then hurried back to our seats before he entered the classroom. No one wanted to be the last to submit, as that would mean that whoever was last would be the first to be assessed. And no one wanted to be the first to submit either, for fear that Uncle Samson may become bitter by the multiple failures of all those like me to reach his academic standard and be provoked to flog all of us. As a matter of fact, we had this unspoken game we all played when submitting our homework. For someone like me, who often times wrote his assignment the night before, I missed sorrow, tears and blood. My regular trademark, 
I hurried to Uncle Samson's desk, being among the first to get there, and waited a brief moment for some of my classmates to drop their foolscap sheets, first before mine. And after a considerable pile had mounted, I slipped in my scanty foolscap sheets and hurried back to my seat. I always cried when it came to doing my homework. I couldn't explain why. It was such a pain. The only school activity I enjoyed and excelled at was fine art. And Uncle Samson did not take too much liking to that. I was not a serious student by standard. In fact, some of the words Uncle Samson often used when describing me were indiscipline, concombility, and nikompo. Yes, it was the big man with the big words. But I checked years later after I finished primary school. Concombility was not even a real word. But to all of us children in his classroom, it was easy to imagine him as Mr. Know-it-all. Malik, my neighbor and classmate, once argued with his mother on an assignment she tried to assist him with. The silly boy had revoked his mother and chastised her for arriving at what he thought in his opinion was the wrong answer, insinuating that Uncle Samson knew better and would flog him if he presented that answer at school the next day. The silly boy had the audacity to tell his mother that she did not know book. I watched in awe as his mother gave him an Igbaru. That is Yoruba for dirty freaking slap at the back of his head, retorting that it was his father's relatives that did not know book and ordered that it disappeared from her sight. He probably drank Gary that night before going to bed, while his siblings enjoyed Amala with Ewedu and beef for dinner. Uncle Samson would never know how many wars he had started in the homes of we children, and how many of our mothers were praying to find him jaywalking in the market one day. For us, we regarded him to be beyond the skill of measurable intelligence. It was simply difficult to imagine him to have ever been a child, he simply arrived to Earth in an asteroid, a fully grown man, whose superpower was the ability to swing the cane at lightning speed, always sure to hit its target. And in case you are wondering where that is, it is the buttocks. It was the one thing he was especially good at, and for that, we hardly ever thought of him as a great teacher. He was more like a terrorist in our books. Every time the class was asked to write a prose about who their favorite teacher was, we lied and came up with nice things to say. Even I, the one whose buttocks he was especially fond of flogging, joined in putting up this pretense. Amy Odaron. Can you blame us? One plus one is always two. You do not need to do a research to discover that the primary school educational system was rigged. For the whole year, every child in primary school had one dedicated class teacher. There were no shifts or substitute teachers, except when they had called in sick and could not make it to school that day, which in the entire one year of primary four never happened with Uncle Samson. Mr. Know-it-all, only he had a knowledge of mathematics, quantitative aptitude, quantitative reasoning, basic science, English, social studies, 
that the subject after this educational era we would hardly ever notice was gone all through our teenage and adult life. History. But Mr. Know it all did not know anything about dyslexia. Nevertheless, he tried. He did his best. He was always in class and was always the first face you'd see every Monday morning at the school's gate, inspecting our bags for contraband or sampling the different aroma of lunch boxes parents gave to their children. He knew whose mother could cook and was not clandestine that being nicer to their children and to their parents at PTA meetings. In one class, while trying to teach us about facts and some of the wonders of the world, he made the spelling of the longest river in the world into a song. It was Mississippi. Again, I checked. According to Google, it was the Nile River and it stretched by 6,550 kilometers. While the Mississippi stretched by only 3,767 kilometers. Did they really think we would never find out? I am willing to bet that the rest of my classmates, 30 years later, would still be singing in their hearts, in the voice of Uncle Samson, that song he taught us. That is something you do not forget. It just stays with you. was the beginning of first term. That morning, at the assembly ground, our school principal, Mr. Ajani Koko, had warned sternly that that term would be different and that neither he nor our teachers would accept any nonsensical behaviour. And as such, it was in our best interest to be in our best behaviour. But when had they ever accepted nonsense? He ordered that at closing time, all students were to convene at the assembly ground where he was going to give us some new instructions concerning the new term and to teach us a new song. It turned out to be a scam and most of us naive children would pay dearly for it. But on that day, we primary four students were the most excited. We now shared the assembly ground with the biggest boys and girls of the school, leaving the rest of primary three boys and girls and below to have their own assemblies elsewhere. I can hardly remember any of the instructions passed down, but I definitely remember the song. The lyrics were simple. It had no hook, no bridge. It was hardly a chorus, more like a refrain that went, Mommy, Daddy, come and pay my school fees, sung over and over until all our voices echoed along. We sang happily after our dismissal as we flooded the school's narrow gate. It was like a quest of who was going to be the last to get out. I remember one time, me and my friends had once been the last to get out through the gate after the crowd had dispersed. We had convinced ourselves that we were big boys and that if we kept up such unruly behaviour, we could not expect the girls to take us seriously. After everyone had left, we made our way to the gate. But we were called back by Mr. Janli Koko's commanding voice. Myself, Jamu, Deji, Taju, Sodik, and Nurudin to pick the litters that had been left behind by the students. We had no gloves or pickers and resorted to using our bare hands. Worse yet, 
the girls we sought to impress met us while we were at it. They had discreetly returned to the classroom, sitting patiently till the crowd had dispersed. Yeah, you're probably thinking what I thought that day. Never again. The next day, we made sure to be among the first to get through the gates amidst the oozing of sweat, disgusting farts, shirt grabbing and trembling on feet. A frenzy which became a tradition till we left the school. Anyway, let me tell you what happened when I got home and sang that song our principal taught us. I received an igbati, in other words, a dirty slap that sent my eyes glistening like the stars. My father needed no reminder that my school fees needed to be paid and ordered I never sing again. That night, I vowed that if whatever message I was asked to deliver from school was not enclosed in an envelope, it was not getting delivered at all. What a stupid song. By the next assembly morning, when the principal demanded we sang the song he had taught us the previous day, the whole school burst into tears, except for primary five and six students. They laughed. Even harder did the principal and his teachers. To be fair, we had been warned by some members of primary five and six students who had siblings in our class not to recite the song to our parents when we got home. But we didn't listen. The assembly line was a crackdown. Apparently, I was not the only one who received the special treatment from either father or mother. We were the same after all. The principal and other teachers put up a pretense of trying to ascertain why we cried. But they had already anticipated the result of our action. Apparently, the song was an old trick that had worked countless times on most primary four students who had just joined the assembly ground. The principal ordered for some quiet. He shifted the weight of his glasses on his flat nose. He grinned as he re-strategized on what to say next. He then encouraged us to take courage as we would need it and taught us yet a new song. Although I never made the mistake of singing it at home, the song stuck with me and I pondered over the lyrics as the years wore on. We are the leaders of tomorrow. Spoiler alert, even that too was a scam. So back to the homework. Remember when I said my classmates and I were afraid to submit our assignments last on the desk? Well, there was one person who was not afraid to do so. In fact, while we all scrambled to reach Uncle Samson's desk, she sat casually in her seat waiting for us to leave the desk, then walked a lazy stride to submit her homework. It was covered in ink on both pages. Her gait was confident. She was a star student. There was a rumor that he often received favors from her parents for looking after their daughter. She was the type of student that would remind the teacher that he gave us an assignment two weeks ago, even after he had forgotten. She relished in the attention. Something about her just seemed to annoy most of us in class, including me. We often called her Bebeto. That is to say, someone that is forward or presumptuous. I've got to say, she was a fine girl. She pleated different hairstyles every week. She always appeared in clean, perfectly ironed school uniform. And she wore double pairs of white socks on each other to school each day 
removing the top one as the slightest stain of dirt. Where the boys played counting games like After Round 1, Original Panado Esther, Otungbeide, Vangida Yasu, she loved Scrabble and Checkers. Even her English was different from the rest of us. It wasn't surprising because her mother was the most spectacular in appearance amongst all parents during PTA meetings. And today, there was rumor that she had traveled with her family to Miami on vacation, while most of us mostly traveled to our villages, helping our grandmothers to grind pepper on stones. The difference is clear. Drink 7-Up, she often teased. She did have some friends though. There were some in the classroom whose parents were just as affluent, but somehow, they did not seem to be academically inclined. Nevertheless, they were birds of the same feather and they flocked together. In time, Uncle Samson entered the class and a great silence set in. No one dared to make a sound. After several minutes of marking the assignment, he excused himself, ordering us to remain quiet. On his return, the school principal, vice principal, and some other popular teachers filed themselves quietly into the class, taking their position by the blackboard. It was time to announce the results. But there was something unusual about this occurrence. Why was Mr. Ajanli Koko here? Uncle Samson called three students to step forward in full view of the class. A girl named Chidera, Chiamaka, the star girl, and of course me. Instinctively, I knew my place among the three. He then addressed the class, acknowledging that while we all may have had different experiences during our holidays, he wanted us to listen to the write-up of each student he had called and be inspired to improve on our writing. No one was going to get punished today, which was such a relief and a surprise to all of us in class. He instructed the class to give a round of applause after each student read his literature. The first reader was Chidera. A holiday told the story of how she spent most of her vacation learning how to sew under a mother's tutelage. She described the sewing machine in its parts and how it helped to produce the well-sewn attire. She narrated a first-hand experience of how her mother dealt with a furious client who had contracted her for a wedding dress, obtained her measurements, but on the day of collection, her mother was surprised to find that her client had lost several kilograms. The client had remarked that the dress looked on her like something she had borrowed. She went on to narrate how that drama had affected her father getting home to a poorly cooked dinner made by her that night, his expression of appreciation, and finally, how she was looking forward to school's resumption and meeting her friends again. It was a nicely written homework. Her corrections came afterward, and surprisingly, it was mild and gentle, which set us at ease. No punishment yet. The next reader was Chiamaka. I know what you're thinking. Save the worst for last, right? Yes, my turn was coming. It was true what they said. Chiamaka went to a foreign land, to Miami. As she narrated her experience, I imagined the airplane accelerate on the runway. I reminisced on the times my friends and I chased the flamingo, shaking our fingers as we sang a superstitious song. And if we waved our fingers, it would turn white like its feathers. 
and I found that prose to be a dream. I fantasized floating on the skies and bouncing on its fluffy pillows. She went on about how much fun she had, what it was like to interact with people whose race we had only seen in the movies, and an American boy she befriended. Whatever. She talked about the seas, the crashing of the waves, the different delicacies she tried, and that she was looking forward to traveling with her mother again next holiday season. It was a vivid dream. As she read her prose, I couldn't help but notice a change in her accent. She sounded American, but forceful. I wonder what was wrong with her. I assumed she had bit her tongue while trying to impress Mr. Anjali Koko of her experience overseas. But to me, her experience meant nothing. I was who I was, the class clown with no privileges like her. I could only dream of her experience. I could never touch it in my wildest dreams. I was who I was, or so I thought. The class eyed Chiamaka enviously and had to be prompted by Uncle Samson to render applause. No one was eager to applaud someone who wanted to stick it in our faces how much better they were than others. We were children, but we understood that it was something you just don't do. Uncle Samson sensed the tension in the air and didn't say much. He simply said, well done Chiamaka, and that was it. It was now my turn. The eyes of the entire class fixed on me. I could see Jamyu urging me to go on. I raised my full scarf sheet with both hands to my face, and as my hands gained altitude, I could see the sweat drip from my fingers down to my arms. All of a sudden it was hot. My full scarf sheet, which had hardened by the dried tears from last night, began to soak, and I found myself wiping the sweat of my hands against my trousers one at a time. Uncle Samson's soothing voice urged me to go on, telling me it was alright to read what I had scribbled down. Let everyone hear you, he said. I never knew you could speak like that. There was something reassuring in his voice this time. It was non-threatening and seemed to be out of genuine concern. You reminded me that no one was getting punished today. I looked back at my full scarf sheet. Taking a quick glance at my audience, I caught sight of the smirk on some of my classmates, expecting me to perform woefully as I often did. But I trusted in the voice I had just heard. No one is getting punished today, I said to myself, and unloaded the avalanche of words buried in my page. Through it all, the class was dead silent, and after a minute had passed, the teachers burst into an explosive applause that made my ears ring. I took a quick glance at my friends. Jamyu had tears flowing from his eyes and some kata flowing from his nose. He was not the only one. Many boys and girls shed tears too as they clapped their hands as hard as they could. It was remarkable. It felt like I had won a competition. I had never felt so much confusion and excitement as I did in that moment. The principal pronounced me gifted and asked several times, privately, if I was truly responsible for writing my assignment. But who else could it be? When I turned five, 
my mother had succumbed to a grave illness that left her bedridden. My father was mostly absent, burning all his youth and vigor at work trying to provide for us. Most of his free time was spent brooding over the woman he loved and caring for her. My brother was learning a trade as a mechanic. We could not afford to send him to secondary school. I was all alone. That day marked the beginning of my good fortune. Perhaps the pain from which I had written my assignment the night before had a lot to do with how my prose was received. It had all come from a place of pain, overwhelming for a child my age. I wanted it all to end. The accolades rained continuously over the next few weeks. Things were no longer the same. Everything changed. The principal instructed that my assignments be edited and uploaded on the school's notice board for all to read. He also ordered that it be a must read for all students of the school. In time, my article made its way to the newspapers. I got to meet the governor of the state, who donated extensively to the school, to my parents, and to my education. Not bad for a dyslexic. I read and understood the attention clearly and everyone wanted to be my friend, even Chiamaka. It turned out that she was a nice girl. She offered to help me with my classwork and my grades gradually improved. We forged a friendship that lasted a lifetime, a context of which I will get to later. As surely as the earth continues to spin, life would always move on. And if you got time to revolve around you today, it would certainly revolve around someone else tomorrow. And your time, no matter how long it seemed, would only feel like it lasted a minute. As the saying goes, time and unforeseen occurrence overtakes us all. Everything bends to time. A breaking news, a change in government policy that affects the lives of millions. Someone died. We are all but a fleeting memory that spins into the thread of events that shapes history. It was Saturday, 10th of December, 2005. All passengers who boarded the flight 1145 to Port Harcourt were advised to click their seatbelts in place and turn off their mobile phones. The flight attendant dramatized some instructions to be followed in case of an emergency, such as finding and breathing through the oxygen mask locating the parachute under the seats and lastly to await refreshments coming shortly after takeoff. The engines revved, thrusting the plane on the runway as it gathered momentum. The nose of the plane kissed the skies with its wing panels flipping as the airplane gained altitude against the force of gravity ascending into the stratosphere. The earth shrank into landmarks, revealing the different topography of the soil with its occupants shrinking like ants as they roam about on the surface. Shortly thereafter, the voice of the pilot echoed in muffled tones through the microphone as he introduced himself, thanked the passengers for choosing to fly with his company and informed his passengers that they had just ascended a remarkable 33,000 feet above ground level. He assured his passengers that they were not expecting any extraordinary turbulence and wished them a nice time on board. For many passengers, they had just witnessed the miracle. The many chanted prayers as they testified to the efficiency of the gigantic machine. 
it was easy to guess who was flying for the first time. Some sang praises and recited hymns, thanking the Lord for lifting them so high, trusting implicitly that they would touch down safely. Soon, they happily received their refreshments, and before long, the prayer warriors drifted into sound sleep from their exhaustion as the plane inched closer to its destination. 45 minutes into the journey, the pilot announced that they were approaching their destination and would be landing soon. But would they? The extreme weather condition and poor judgment on the part of the pilot will cause the most tragic accident ever to be recorded up till that time. Many families would not be reuniting with their loved ones and many parents would never get to see their children again. The pilot requested permission to land, but he could barely see the runway due to the poor weather and bad lighting. Acting against protocol, he continued his descent against the recommended altitude, with the runway still hardly visible to him, even at approximately 150 feet above ground level. A costly mistake. Realizing the folly of his decision, the pilot began to have second thoughts. He attempted to pull the plane back into the air, but the mistake had already been done, and no amount of expertise gathered through flying hours would bend the laws of physics. The plane would need to gather momentum against gravity in order to keep its nose up, but this was already a few hundred feet above ground. It would cost him his life and the lives of over 100 people on board, many of whom were secondary school children. The plane crashed into the earth, sending a deafening explosion through the air. If anyone could have survived, the unavailability of fire trucks by the airports save for one reduced the chances of saving anybody to almost zero. It was simply too late. The Sosoliso plane had crashed and what was left of it was balls of fire with bits and pieces scattered about. It was a goring sight. We all heard it in the news, whether through the telly or the radio set. The news spread like wildfire. Most parents watched in shock at the live footage that captured the fall of the plane. It seemed to have dropped to the earth like a ball released from the grasp of a little child. They tried to cover the eyes of their children in an attempt to shield them from the nightmare unraveling on their screen. But the mind was already scarred by the fire, and neither could they stop their ears from trailing the words of the news presenter who described the event. It was not until much later that many of us got to see that sacred footage that had been hidden from us long ago. Our eyes were thirsty with curiosity, but like all secrets, they do not stay hidden forever. The next Monday at the assembly ground, the principal called for a one minute silence for the lives of those who were lost in the catastrophe. The wind of attention now blew to Chiamaka as none of us knew what it was like to be on an airplane, hoping that she could breathe life into her imagination. But this was not the mantle of recognition she wanted to wear. She became withdrawn. 
in many ways than was acknowledged. The incident affected the lives of millions of people, even those who were unrelated to the victims. It has been 30 years since that history, and even though this is not my first radio, I could not help but feel agitated and anxious. I observed all protocols, clicked my seatbelt in its place, and tried to breathe. The inner child in me thought that if I died, I would not be going down alone. But I dismissed that quickly. More painful to think about was my 10-year-old daughter strapped in her seat on my right and my wife Chiamaka strapped in hers on my father's right. Yes, our teenage love had blossomed and yielded fruit with the most precious gift of ours sitting right in our middle. As the plane gained altitude, I felt the lump rise in my throat with beads of sweat building on my face. I was reminded that I was not alone. My wife dabbed the sweat on my face with a handkerchief and reassured me that everything was going to be alright, that I was safe. My daughter rubbed her hands against the back of my hands as she pierced me with her big eyes as if seeking to search into my soul. Later, I closed my eyes and said a prayer. But a seven good minutes into ascent, I had passed out slumbering and snoring away. It is a new age, and even though planes are reputed to be safer than in my childhood days, I never trusted them. Much after disembarking from the plane, I will be presented a video of myself snoring in deep sleep, with my wife and daughter laughing at me, while I laughed between my teeth and threatening that they delete the video in Uncle Samson's voice, which somehow sounded funny to my daughter as I clutched her in my embrace. Thank you for listening to this episode. This story was researched, written, narrated, edited, and produced by myself, Olawale Shobule. Special thanks to Tomiwa Feishara for singing the Olodo song and the Leke Leke song, and Zukei Ndi Adesomi for voicing Malik's mother, and also to Pixabay. If you enjoyed listening to this story, kindly show your support by liking, rating, sharing and subscribing to the now you're here podcast wherever you get your podcast tell a friend to tell a friend and see you on the next episode